0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown against Adams, and the citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 19. The man at the heart of this case, Jerry Adams, is fairly well known, and a lot of the people listening to the podcast will at least recognise the name. However, I don't like to assume knowledge, so a brief biography is hopefully useful for everyone. Adams is an Irish Republican, meaning he has spent a large part of his life campaigning for a united Ireland, independent of British rule. His political activities began in the civil rights movement of the late 60s that later turned into riots. After he spent a lot of the early 70s behind bars, he became a prominent figure in the Sinn Féin political party and went on to become the president of that party in 1983. Under his leadership, the party slowly moved from simply being a political voice of the provisional IRA to a legitimate political party, although when he was elected as an MP for the constituency of Belfast West, he refused to take his seat in line with the principles of Sinn Féin. During the 90s, Adams was part of the negotiations with the British government that eventually led to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, From that point on, he did play a role as an actual representative in the new Northern Ireland Assembly, and later as a member of the DALE in the Republic of Ireland. In 2018, he stepped down as the President of Sinn Féin, and did not seek re-election earlier on this year for the DALE. The specific incident that we are looking at today took place way back in 1973, when Adams was subject to something called an Interim Custody Order, or ICO for short, These orders essentially allowed for certain persons in the six counties to be detained without trial, or interred as it was commonly referred to. Their legal authority derives from Article 4 of the Detention of Terrorists Northern Ireland Order 1972, and this allows the Secretary of State to make an ICO once they suspect someone of being involved in terrorism. The rules from that point forward are that once a person has been detained, they do have to be released within 28 days, unless the Chief Constable makes a reference to the Commissioner, who can make a proper detention order, if they are satisfied that the person was indeed involved in terrorism. If not, then the person has to be released. An ICO was made in respect of Gerry Adams in July 1973, and shortly afterwards he was interred at the infamous Mays Prison in County Down. He attempted to escape on Christmas Eve 1973, and then again in July the following year, but was unsuccessful and was twice convicted of attempting to escape lawful detention in 1975. Although this all happened a long time ago, the issue came up again more recently because of something called the 30-year rule, This is the principle that certain government documents, which are normally not in the public domain, will be published after a period of 30 years has elapsed. The document in question was from Baron Hutton, who, at the time, was simply Brian Hutton QC, and it strongly suggested that when an ICO was made, it was necessary for the Secretary of State to have actually considered the matter personally. On this basis, Gerry Adams challenged the ICO made against him in July 1973, as well as the subsequent convictions for attempting to escape lawful detention. The Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland dismissed the case, and so Adams brought his appeal to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. The legal question that this comes down to is whether Article 4 of that 1972 order does indeed require the Secretary of State to consider the matter personally, before an ICO is made. The alternative is that something called the Carltona Principle might apply. This comes from the 1943 case of Carltona Limited and Commissioner of Works, and establishes that the powers bestowed upon a minister will practically be exercised by responsible officials within the department. Furthermore, such a delegation of powers is perfectly legitimate according to this principle. If Kaltona were applied to Adams's case, then it would not matter that the Secretary of State did not consider his ICO personally. However, Kaltona does not stand on its own, and Lord Kerr used his lead judgment to explore some of the other case law in this area. For example, the judgment of Justice Brightman in Regolden Chemicals Products Limited from 1976 was interpreted to mean that it is necessary to take into account the seriousness of the consequences as one of the factors when making a decision on the application of the Carltona principle in theory, this would help Adams because internment is clearly a very serious consequence. However, the nineteen ninety one case of Olada Hinday and Secretary of State for the Home Department ended up mitigating against his case because it was held that Carltona could still apply because there was no wording in the legislation that specifically said that the action had to be personally performed by the Secretary of State, instead of someone acting under his authority. This was followed up in 1992 by Duty and Secretary of State for the Home Department that is distinguishable in this instance, but did also consider the requirements of the Act, as well as whether the disapplication of the Carltona Principle would place an undue burden on the Secretary of State. All of this culminated in an analysis of the present state of the law in light of the more recent decision from the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal in McCafferty's application 2009. In that case, it was suggested that there is a presumption in law that Carltona generally will apply unless there is evidence to suggest that it be disapplied. Although technically obiter, Lord Kerr made it very clear that he did not agree with such a presumption, and that instead each question should be based on the wording of the legislation in its context, alongside the importance of the subject matter. With that in mind, we can turn back to the proceedings before us today, and begin an analysis of the Detention of Terrorists to Northern Ireland Order 1972. Article 4 of that order is interesting because it splits things into two separate paragraphs. The first is about making the ICO, and the second is about signing it, and so this immediately suggests that the signing of an interim custody order is of special significance, and that there is an arguable case that Carltona should not apply in this instance. Beyond that, the second paragraph even describes the ICO of being, quote, of the Secretary of State, end quote and that language appears to suggest that the order is personal to him or her, rather than something more generic. As for other factors outside of the wording, we have already said that internment was a sufficiently serious consequence to merit personal attention by the Secretary of State, and signing off on an individual's ICO would not put too disproportional a burden on their time. In conclusion, it was decided that Carltona does not apply here, and so the ICO that was made in respect of Jerry Adams was invalid. It follows that he was not detained lawfully, and so the two subsequent convictions for attempting to escape lawful custody must be quashed. As far as my own analysis of this case goes, I am very keen not to get too far into the weeds. Many commentators have used this case as an excuse to dredge at old issues, but the questions of whether or not Adams was a member of the IRA or some sort of British secret agent, is best left to the mob on Twitter. Some argued that Adams had got off on a technicality, and again that is a question of interpretation. On the surface, the wrong person signing the order seems to be neither here nor there, but then again this was an important question at a sensitive time in the Troubles. Nevertheless, I do think this touches on an important legal point, and that is what role the seriousness of the issue played into the decision. There was a sharp contrast between the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Golden Chemicals case. For the Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland, the seriousness was not a factor at all, whereas for the Supreme Court it was something that most certainly played a role in the final decision. So which side was right? I think the answer traces its roots back to the interpretation of any given piece of legislation. As we saw in these proceedings, a major part of the statutory interpretation is looking at the wording of any given provision, but it is also important to consider those words in context. That means the legislative context, but also the practical context in society as well. A failure to do this means false equivalencies are drawn between actions that have greatly different consequences and that is why the seriousness of the subject matter is a factor. The courts have always placed provisions that threaten a person's liberty under greater scrutiny, and the continuation of that tradition is something to be welcomed. In practical terms, this decision has led to more than 250 claims being launched by other former internees who argue that their own ICOs were invalid. This will likely end up costing the British government a pretty penny. But if that is the cost of integrity, then it is a small price to pay. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode. And thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Before I go, I do want to give a very special shout out to London Fitness Kitchen, who left a five star review of the podcast on iTunes. That is always very much appreciated. And any and all reviews do really help the podcast get noticed a lot more. So if you do have time and you do enjoy the podcast, then make sure to go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really does help. And I'll read out your name on the podcast as well. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!